Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome back to another episode of C is for Creepy. Thank you so much for listening to last week's episode. We loved seeing all the downloads and listens. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And always, please remember to rate, uh, subscribe, give us reviews. We love seeing all the positive feedback. Yes, we love it. Thank you so much. And if you ever have any stories that you want us to cover, please make sure that you shoot us an email on c4creepy at gmail.com. Absolutely. All right. So let's just get right into it. For the letter L, what do you, not L, N, what do you have for me? Alright, so this episode, we are going to be covering one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Courtney just like, I wish we were filming it because she just cringed. I was bracing myself. <laughs> Your favorite topic seemed to just make me want <laughs> to cringe. Okay, so this is something that fascinates me because even with the research done on this topic... Like, humans just straight up never cease to amaze me and how just, like, fucked up they can really be, to be blunt. Sorry, what are you covering that is worse than ha- than it's already gotten? Well, my end for this week is necrophilia. Um. Wow, okay. Okay. We went there. We, <laughs> we went there. Yes, I- we did. I'm excited. I'm not here for it. In psychiatry, necrophilia is defined as attraction towards or sexual relations with a corpse. Hmm. This practice has been documented throughout history, with writings and artifacts having been found from many cultures around the world depicting necrophilia. Necrophilic acts. This practice has also been observed in animals with a paper written about sexual behaviors of Adele Adelie penguins in 1912, and it was considered too shocking for publication after the author reportedly witnessed young male penguins mating with the dead females. Interesting. Which I really love, just 1912. No, we can't post this out. <laughs> And nowadays, it's just like, hey, you hear about them penguins? <laughs> no kidding. I actually thought you were going to talk about otters. Those are really messed up, too. Same with dolphins, though. They've been reported, like, killing animals for masturbation purposes. Yeah. Yeah. So penguins was a refreshing new one to hear about. Yep. Yeah. Same with ducks, I think. There's been cases of that. And reptiles, pretty much any animal kingdom member interesting species yeah it's it's weird it's just weird it's like a weird glitch in the matrix kind of a little bit well i think in some animal cases they're just confused like the paper that i had read about the penguins in particular were like well these are young males and a dead female penguin looks very similar to a um female penguin populating yeah (laughs) Like, they got their eyes kind of closed, and they're just lying there, so, like, what's the difference? <laughs> I'm just gonna walk up, don't mind me. 
Oh, oh. okay. Sorry, do we continue talking about penguins? No, we're, I'm moving on. Oh, no. Okay, so necrophilia has been extremely well broken down into ten different classifications. Sorry, there's ten? There's a lot of different classifications. There, I'll get to some of them. Like, I'm not going to get super in-depth into them, but there is ten. Okay. And this wasn't proposed until 2012, these ten. So the 10 different classifications range from one, so that's people who roleplay, who like have a fantasy and roleplay it, mm-hmm. and it goes all the way up to 10, which are people who exclusively have interest in dead bodies and cannot perform sexually for the living. So there's a range in between, there's a lot of different steps, so like that includes people that only want deceased loved ones. Like, that just fantasize about them. Mm-hmm. And, like, people that just touch, people that, to people that commit homicide and for necrophilic purposes. There's I'm uncomfortable. All... <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you don't do good with these topics. <laughs> I just, I, I just. It's because I love you. I know. <laughs> I appreciate that about you. <laughs> okay. There has also been specific breakdowns done by criminologist Lee Miller, who has studied homicidal necrophiliacs and has come up with eight further categories. These are based upon whether the killer mutilates the corpse or preserves it. Oh, you're not going to like this. And when the act happens. So hot would be immediately following the death. Warm body. Warm body. And cold would be anywhere after two hours. When, like, rigor mortis has started to kick in and... Yeah, as soon as, like, decomposition, like, really clicks. So, I know that it's probably not just males, but I'm gonna go there. But, like, what male thinks, this is a great idea to stick my penis in a decomposing corpse? So, once again, like, there is definitely that. That is a part of it. But there's a range, right? I'm more thinking of, like, couldn't that cause infections? And So I did look that up, and it was surprisingly <laughs> hard to find online. Like, from what I read, <laughs> the only issues associated health-wise would be if the deceased had died from an illness, and that was contagious. From huh. what I've read, I'm sure Google's not... I'm sure I'm flagged at this point because... What diseases can you get from having sex with a dead? Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah, and I was not using incognito mode. So, yeah, I'm definitely flagged. <laughs> yeah, like, you would think that that would cause some kind of infection. I would, I would think so. I think... Unless they're practicing safe sex measures? You know, you'd really hope... I would really hope for their sake that that was the case. But other than, like, maybe if they had an open wound, like, if the living person had an open wound, maybe that would be a potential for any sort of, like, um, decomposition to get in there. Okay. <laughs> I feel like this is what we should have videotaped. Well, I'm not dressed for it. So. I, I don't know why, but this one's uh, this one's making me extremely uncomfortable. I, I'm <laughs> out of all of them so far. I think this is like 
the soonest in that I've been this uncomfortable. It doesn't get better. <laughs> of course it doesn't. <laughs> okay, so we talked about the eight categories, eight uh, hot and cold. So these eight categories are labeled A through H, with the first four letters being a combination of the previously mentioned attributes, and E through H being outliers. So those are like dabblers who are opportunistic but do not regularly perform relations on corpses. Mm -hmm. Um, Two sexual cannibals and vampires who have sexual pleasure from ingesting human body parts. Okay. So the question remains how and why could someone feel attraction to a dead body? The most prevalent and in-depth research done on the subject was done in 1989 by J.P. Rossman and Philip Resnick. I did look for more recent research, but everywhere I found was citing this particular paper. Okay. So that's, there hasn't been anything too new in necrophilia (laughs) recently. Well, that's good. Ish. Ish. I think that... That's all that they're really willing to look into. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. So in the paper titled Sexual Attraction to Corpses, a Psychiatric Review of Necrophilia, they examined 122 cases, 88 from world literature, and 34 undocumented. They found that 92% of those studies were male and 8% were female. And of those numbers, 57% had an occupation had occupational access to the bodies. I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, morgue attendants, funeral home directors, morticians, um, people that work in hospitals are good candidate. Can- candidates? Thank you, yes. It would be interesting to think of, like, the checks that you get when you get hired at these places. Mm. Like, I wonder if you have to go through some kind of psych eval just to not pose a risk to your employer of this happening. I, you know, especially nowadays, I think that is a good question. I know, at least when my case took place, that was not a thing. So, cool, 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 cool. So the doctors were able to dif- differentiate between genuine necrophilia. So those were people who had persistent attraction to corpses, and then they also had a label. Um, which they called pseudo-necrophiliacs, who pretty much just did so out of opportunity or because they were sadists or they just had, like, a fleeting interest in it. Like, they're just like, eh, you only live once, so. Okay. Upon examining the 34 genuine necrophiles, they also found that 68% were motivated by a desire for a non-resisting and non-rejecting partner. Other motives included wanting to feel total control over a partner, low self-esteem, wanting to reunite with a dead partner, wanting comfort, and wanting to overcome feelings of isolation. So it's interesting as far as like paraphilias go, because a lot of times, not just with necrophilia, but when you get people that have attractions to, let's like, Sex dolls, for instance, people Mm -hmm. that are often feeling the rejection or feel that they would be rejected by humans. They turn their interests to something that cannot reject them. It gives them power because, like, even though it's not real, 
in their brain it is. Yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's a way to supplement that loneliness and self-confidence that they might be having issues with. And they justify and they try to think, like, oh, no, this is just how I'm wired. But no, or maybe to a degree, but there's always the chance that you could work on it. Okay. At least in those instances. I'm not going to get too in-depth into those because there's a book about it. <laughs> I feel like we need to hear about sex doll crimes at one point in time. I'll see if I can find that because that would definitely be interesting. If you can't find a lot, like even a nocturnal novella. Hell yeah. I could definitely cover that. There's a few short necrophiles that I need to cover for a nocturnal novella because there's just not enough information, but damn, they're weird. <laughs> That would be wonderful. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> I might cut this part out, but I had to share it with you. I forgot that I put it in here. Okay. <laughs> in scientific literature, necrophilia is often referred to as Davian behavior, started by R.W. Dickerman, who noted the behavior in ground squirrels. This term passed through other scientific review. No one questioned the term Davian behavior until after publication, and at that point it was too late. <laughs> Dickerman had taken the term from a very dirty limerick, which I'm going to share with you now. Please do. There once was a hermit named Dave, who kept a dead whore in his cave. I know it's a sin, he said with a grin, but think of the money I save. Oh my god, that is amazing. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just pissing myself laughing. And they had, there was this website and it had like every single variation. <laughs> That's fabulous. So, oh. despite the very unscientific origin, the term stuck. And also, when observed in birds, it's referred to as avian davian behavior. <laughs> <laughs> people but there's going to be no murder this case so it's december 17th 1957 we're located in sacramento california there's a black hearse carrying the body of a 33 year old man and it's driving towards his final resting place the family is waiting for his arrival so the funeral can begin the hearse is in sight but in a shocking twist the cart is a big donut and it takes off in the other direction. This is the story of Karen Margaret Greenlee, a female necrophile. Oh, I, I, like, I like that you changed it up. But I, I don't love this story, but continue. So born in 1957, Greenlee had known about her strange predilections as, like, since childhood. She would hold funerals for her pets and had a pet graveyard set up in her yard. 
She grew up in a small town, and the funeral home was next to, like, the fireman's hall where they'd host barbecues and other events, and the only bathroom was in the funeral home. Okay. So she would walk up and down the hallways, like, she would spend lots of time in the funeral home, like, she would sneak in every chance she got because the thought of it was exciting to her. Mm -hmm. Like, even as a kid, she, like, was attracted to death if like maybe not in a sexual nature at that age but it excited her Mm -hmm. she wasn't afraid of death but instead felt drawn to it i looked so this is from a few different sources and i tried to find the news articles but that was on newspaper.com and i'm i don't i'm not spending money for that (laughs) so there was her father does claims that greenlee had been sexually abused at eight years old and 14 by a teacher while living in Sonoma County. That's one report. I cannot verify it, so just going to throw that in there. The family then moved to Colfax, California. Okay. So Greenlee was 22 years old at the time of the hearse incident. She had been employed at the Memorial Lawn Mortuary as an apprentice embalmer, which gave her access to the objects of her desire. She and the body of John Leo Merker were found two days later after the hearse incident, and they were found the county over in a cheap hotel room. Oh my goodness. When discovered, Greenlee, in a depressed state, attempted to complete suicide by ingesting 20 codeine Tylenol pills. She was taken to the hospital and her stomach was pumped and she did survive that attempt. In the coffin where the body was laying, she had left a note, a four-page note, in fact, (laughs) detailing her confessions. I'm sorry, do you get into, like, how that works? I'll get to it. I'll definitely get to it. There's no way I'm going to leave that out. Okay, so in the note, she admitted to having relations with between 20 and 40 dead male corpses, with her preference being men... Attractive men in their 20s. Okay. The note was also full of remorse. Quote, why did I do it? Why? Fear of love, relationships. Nothing has ever hurt me like this. It's the pits. I'm a morgrat. This is my rat hole. Perhaps my grave. End quote. And like she viewed her necrophilia as an addiction. Like this was something that she felt was out of her control that she was addicted to. They do say that about some philias, mm-hmm. um, that it is like an addiction. Mm-hmm. It's such weird terms. Like, this is my rat hole. Yeah. What a weird... I think that says a lot about... Where she is. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's in this depressed state. She had already made um, multiple suicide attempts previous to this. So, mentally, she was not coping with her philia well. Like, society was telling her that this was not okay, so she hated herself for that. So, if she made previous attempts at suicide, did nobody step in and think, maybe working in a morgue isn't the best option here? I don't think that they thought that far ahead. Okay. Yeah, it's the 70s. This This is true. We don't talk about mental health in the 70s. Okay. Right. Nowadays, I feel like you would be flagged. A little bit. I'm sure that there would be more looking into, for sure. Okay. So, while necrophilia was not illegal in California at the time, Greenlee was charged with stealing the hearse and 
interfering with a funeral. Excuse me? Necrophilia is not a crime. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. I- I've got a whole section. I promise we'll get to it. Okay. She pled guilty and was sentenced to pay a fine of $255, and she also spent 11 days in prison. And part of her probation included mandatory therapy. She recounted in an interview for Apocalypse Culture in 1987 that talking to therapists and social workers really helped her, except that necrophilia made sense for her. The mother of John Merker, named Marlon Gonzalez, attempted to sue Greenlee for $1 million as she claimed that the theft of her son's corpse damaged her psyche and left her with emotional distress. And you know, it would. Uh-huh. The, with the exception of homicidal necrophilia, the main victims in these cases are the family of the deceased. Yeah. Right? There are also many philosophical debates regarding necrophilia, which focus primarily on, like, body autonomy. So, like, the person is dead, so they cannot consent. Like, it's wrong. Uh-huh. Right? Um, ba, ba, ba. Oh, yeah. So, it focuses on the autonomy of the deceased person and the degradations committed against them. Uh-huh. Despite this, there are still many places where necrophilia is not technically illegal. In fact, because dead people are not always classified as persons, they're like kind of technically a property that's passed on to next of kin. It's actually come becomes more of like an act of vandalism than a sexual assault. Talk about a lesser crime. So it really do also depends where in the world you are. Like the UK has very strict, very like they wrote in their laws, you do not fuck dead people. <laughs> like, no, obviously not verbatim, but they made it ironclad. There is no getting around us. Whereas, at least in the States, I didn't see too much about Canada, but in the States, it's not listed in most states as, like, a crime. And it's not federally regulated either. So it's by state level. Kind of just up to the judge to say, ooh. Yeah. Well, and, like... There's, um, I was reading about this one lawmaker in Wisconsin that was arguing, well, if you rape somebody and then kill them, you get two charges. You get a sexual assault and a murder charge. But if you kill someone and then rape their corpse, you are still only charged one thing. Like, what's the difference? It's Mm -hmm. still a disgusting act in society. Yeah. So... There are lawmakers trying to change that, but there's still a long ways to go. No kidding. So there are laws in place regarding the disposal of dead bodies, which are mostly in place for health and safety purposes. Just, it's, you can't have a dead body just lying around. (laughs) Sorry, we have laws about where you can put a dead body, but we don't have laws about having sex with dead bodies. No. Okay. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. It's it's real inter- it's really interesting actually, but it's there's a lot to get into. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyways, back to my case with Marlon Gonzalez and Karen Green. Their lawsuit was settled for $117,000 for general and punitive damages. Okay. Okay. So after the trial, Greenlee's 
Greenlee's life changed. She had a brother that had completely cut her out of his life. And she had another brother and like he still talked to her, but he was like, why did you do this? Like, just couldn't really believe, like wrap his hand around it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Her unconventional desires were spread across the media with some papers comparing her to Richard Trenton Chase, who was also from Sacramento. And he was called the Vampire Killer. He was a homicidal necrophile who he also cannibalized the remains of six of his victims. So, like, she's like, well, that's not fair. I didn't even kill anybody. Why are you comparing me? That's apples and oranges. (laughs) Nor did she eat them. Nor did she eat them. (laughs) Brianne's life was in shambles because of all the press. And she was no longer able to find work as an embalmer. So that cut off a very direct access to... Mm-hmm. Her... Her was? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She did, as I mentioned previously, work with a therapist and begin to accept her desires. So her she was accepting that her desires were right for her. Greenlee started to become open and gave interviews, and in fact, she gave a very detailed interview explaining her desires and how she came to accept that part of herself. So a few of the biggest questions she answered was exactly how did she do it? Her answer being that lovemaking, those were her words, did not have to be penetrative to be satisfying. Like she was like, you know, like female simulation is mostly on the front of the mm-hmm. that area. <laughs> so it did not have to be penetrative to be satisfying but also just being with the body and, like, touching it and rubbing against it, that was enough to make her happy. She enjoyed the smell of a body after it was freshly embalmed, saying that it was a very erotic scent. Oh, okay. And, like, she even said, like, you know, like, there's dead, like, two weeks baking in the sun? No, but, like, a fresh embalmed corpse was her thing. Okay. She was also attracted to the blood that would come out of the corpse's mouth as she would lie on top of it. Ew. (laughs) She also noted that while she was definitely fooling around with the attractive young men on the cold metal tables, she certainly wasn't the only one who worked at funeral homes that would enjoy more than just the company of the dead. Oh! Like, and when she was on the stand, there was... I think it was her boss that had said, like, oh, no, and, like, that just doesn't happen here. That's definitely abnormal. She's like, no, like, a lot of the other people that I worked with, well, maybe not a lot, but other people I worked with were definitely doing it. Inappropriate with the corpses. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know about you, but I personally have a very big fear of being embalmed. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Like, Absolutely not. I, I just can't do it. I can't wrap my mind around it. It just, it bothers me to my core. Mm-hmm. And, like, not even the fact that other people are going to be working on me. It's the process. But after reading this, now it's also the people. <laughs> no, cremate me. All the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, even, like, cremation is good and all, but even if I could just, like, decompose naturally i would be down with that like in a meadow far away from people like that's not legal though so, so. what you're saying is you'd like to be chopped up and kind of thrown into the mountains <laughs> i don't need necessarily be need to be chopped up okay but to lug your body anywhere you would need to be 
No. For me? Yes. Well, for you, yes. <laughs> wow. I'm sure you can find someone to help you. <laughs> but this is also very illegal. So we learned this in your last case, that the more people that know... Very true. Okay, well... <laughs> Sorry. You getting cleavered in my basement. <laughs> That's a lot of work. I don't know if you got the strength for that. <laughs> yeah, Jeff just starts asking why I'm going to Banff so often. <laughs> really sure take it up hiking, hey? Just throw a leg every year. Every few miles. <laughs> It's like the worst trail ever. That poor family hiking behind me because we know I'm not doing the expert trail. No, yeah, no, you're not even going off the path. (laughs) (laughs) Just yeeting you into the bush. (laughs) I feel like that's a great way to go. (laughs) I'm hoping to be dead then. This is true. Oh, God. Okay, so uh, Greenlee also claimed that she had broken into the morgue and read an exhumation order for the body of John Merker, the man that she had stolen. Defiled. Yes. Um, so after reading that order, she found out what day it was happening and she watched them exhume his coffin. Because, like, his mother's like... Your funeral home allowed this to happen. You hired her. I'm not keeping his body there. We're moving it. Wait, so they continued on with the funeral? Oh, yeah. The they, funeral home was like, yeah, we'll just bury him here and it'll be fine. And she was like, the mother was like, no, it will not be fine. You done fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So the entire interview is online, and it is absolutely fascinating to read. Like, I was very surprised by, like, some of the stuff that I was reading. It was, I think, too, as a woman reading something by a woman, she makes it sound very romantic, Mm. which is interesting. And then you remember it's about necrophilia? It's about necrophilia, and if... I was reading it and it was a male. I know that I would be like, you're fucking raping corpses, bud. So there's no reason why it's any different in my opinion. Yeah. Right. Like either way, it's, it's still defiling. But I think that raises a really good question of do corpses still have body autonomy? Well, and like, okay. So since you brought that up, um, think about like organ donation you're not allowed to donate organs unless you agree to it prior to your death right when it's not beneficial for society to continue with that like it makes more sense to opt out of an organ donation program but because humans want to preserve their loved ones that's not the case Right. So you have to opt into instead of opt out. So that's something that would benefit society. But then you talk about like this where it's technically vandalism. So it's really icky. It's really hard to wrap your head around that in some cases, yes, they do have body autonomy and in other cases they don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Greenlee has some interesting effects on culture with her story inspiring a short story written in 1992 titled quote we so seldom look on love this story was turned into the movie in 1996 it's a canadian movie (laughs) it's called kiss 
1996, it was also reported that Karen Greeley was writing poetry and touring, speaking about necrophilia and sexual liberation. And I looked everywhere and I could not find any copies of her poetry. (laughs) I looked, I promise, I could not find it. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. I agree, because once again, she makes it sound very romantic. Well, and it's totally fine to acknowledge your philias. You know, you, as long as you aren't acting on them, I think it's very beneficial to understand what your brain is doing and what these feelings are. Mm-hmm. But if you are romanticizing it, I feel like you are almost saying it's okay. I think so. I think that's where the problem is for me. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's claimed by a magazine called Esotero, the Journal of Extreme Culture, that Greenlee did a recorded interview that was never aired as she refused to show repentance for her actions, which I think speaks very strongly, too, about, like, what we were just discussing. Like, she sees absolutely nothing wrong with the way that she is. No, no, at that time, she did not. Um, there's also a horror musical done about her life <laughs> called The Unrepentant Necrophile, and that's based on her story as well. Interesting. So I've tried to find where she is now. However, reports say that she has since changed her identity and moved cities to escape the unwanted infamy uh, that being an open necrophile would have. And like in her interview that I read online, there was men that would approach her that were interested in being with her romantically because they wanted to, like, fix her. Or, like, I think they wanted that ego boost that they could turn her from stiffs to living men. And Mm -hmm. that's, like, the only reason why men were approaching her. So it's, like, and you know that there's guys out there that would be really into that. So it's... I feel like it's a very thin-lined walk. I think so. I completely understand why she went underground after being so open about it because... Well, and you also get so much hate. Mm-hmm. Because if necrophilia is okay, then what's not to say that pedophilia isn't mm-hmm. is o- like, isn't okay? Yeah, or like bestiality. Like, you can get into it with all things that, like, we know morally are wrong, but, but as soon as she's opening that door... There's a community of people that's like, yeah, right on, that's great. You start to think, like, maybe this is okay. Maybe I just can't tell people. Yeah. Like, thin line to walk. Exactly. No, I... Therapy. Mm-hmm. Like I said, this case was just fascinating to me because most of the recorded necrophiles that I found anyways were homicidal, which, don't get me wrong, I'm gonna cover a few of them. I'll get there eventually. But from, like, a purely just somebody that worked with them that just wanted to be with them and like was trying to be open and like spread that I was just mind-blowing I don't it's hard to wrap your mind around yeah I agree yeah okay so anyways that is the story of Karen Greenlee a female necrophile I feel no better after hearing that case At least I did give you a limerick, which is technically a poem. It's wonderful. <laughs> wow, that was that was quite the case. Like it was really good, mm-hmm. and it's not what I expected the end goal to be. 
I, I just thought it brought up like a lot of really good conversations that should be had. 100%. Yeah. I think necrophilia should be like, you know what? You can have the thoughts, but if you are actually working on these, like, like actually physically taking them out, like taking them out on actual humans, like dead humans, there should be repercussions more than just vandalism. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, but if you can't take my organs because I've passed and didn't give you permission to take them, mm-hmm. why why do you have permission to defile my dead body? Right. All right. What is your N? My N is for Nessie. Woo! So I know you asked for this one. I so. sure did. This one is more of like a timeline of things that have happened okay more so than a story because i just felt like doing it this way cool i like it so the loch ness monster also known as nessie is a large marine creature believed by some people to inhabit loch ness scotland there have been over 85 theories of what the loch ness monster is ranging from the mundane wind reflections plant debris and bowiks to the zoological unlikely Massive anacondas, killer whales, and ocean sunfish. Two completely wild ghost stories like ghost dinosaurs. See, I was really hoping you would bring that up because I love that theory. That is what I choose to believe. I agree. (laughs) I don't know. I think there's something to be said about it. I, I wholeheartedly believe in cryptids and I think the Loch Ness Monster truly existed. And I say existed for a specific reason. Oh, no. But I 100% think it did. Yeah. So the people that came up with these theories were not necessarily that familiar with the lock, but they still made their own theories. Kind of like me. (laughs) Many early suggestions. Sorry, there's a huge storm going on outside. Mm Many early suggestions by foreign zoologists implied that they thought the lock was saltwater. Oh. Which explains suggestions of sunfish, whales, sharks, and rays. Makes sense, but it's freshwater. I think so. If it's not salt. I think it... Or does it have like a salt... Yeah, it has like a salt river from the ocean, but it is a freshwater lake. Okay. Does that make sense? Like there's, there's a spot where it kind of intersects and there's some sodium. Yes. Okay. Now, if I'm totally wrong, please email us and let me know. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to get a blot. <laughs> I know. But it was it was kind of weird because I didn't actually think to look it up. <laughs> but there was a few different options of like saying it's a stream from the ocean and we'll okay. get there. Okay. Yes. Some theories have been reinvented independently, showing the ingenuity of each generation of Nessie inventors. For example, the idea that the Loch Ness Monster was originally a swimming elephant from a visiting circus, resurfacing three times in 1934, 1979, and 2005. Okay. Each time the person claimed the idea was original. (laughs) They're like, nobody's ever thought of this one before. Yeah. (laughs) Most reports of the Loch Ness Monster don't feature long necks. Biochemist and Nessie investigator Roy McCall said in 1976 there were over 10,000 reports of Loch Ness monsters, of 
1452 distinct encounters, only about 20% of their reports mentioned a neck of any length. Really? Mm-hmm. So, it is not the monster's normal form. Does she have to be a monster? No. <laughs> We're going to use that term, though. Okay. Also, less than 1% of creatures in the reports are described as reptilian or scaly. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think that. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, there are many accounts to report on. I've picked a few to report on, along with some of the government investigations that were set up to try and find Nessie. Oh, I'm so excited. So, reports of a monster inhabiting Loch Ness date back to ancient times. Notably, local stone carvings by the Pict depict a mysterious beast with flippers. Ooh. The first written account appears in a biography of St. Columbia from 565 AD. Wow. It reports a monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness. Appeared in the Life of St. Columbia by Adomnan, written in the 6th century. According to Adomnan, writing about a century after the events described Irish monk St. Columbia was staying in the lands of the Pickets. The Pickets are members of ancient people inhabiting North Scotland in Roman times. Okay. With his companions when he encountered local residents burying a man by the river Ness. They explained that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast oh. that mauled him and dragged him underwater. Despite their attempts to rescue him by boat, Columbia sent a follower, Leguin Makumin, to swim across the river. <laughs> the beast approached him, but Columba made the sign of the cross and said, Go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. <laughs> Power of Christ compels you. Literally. <laughs> the creature stopped as if it had been pulled back with ropes and fled. And Columba's man and the pickets gave thanks to what they perceived as a miracle. Okay. 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 Some religious writings, I, I presume. I, I would say so. That seems mm, maybe slightly exaggerated. Only slightly. I, I would just... I would, I would just say. But. You know what? Nessie is a beast of God. Okay. <laughs> I, is there any other option here? Um, I prefer <clears throat> ghost. Okay. That, that is my preference. You know what? That's true. <laughs> Over the centuries, only occasional sightings were reported. Many of these alleged encounters seemed inspired by Scottish folklore, which about which abounds with mythical water creatures. Like the, the water horse. Mm-hmm. hmm In October of 1871 or 1872, Dr. Mackenzie Mc- Dr. of Balnain reportedly saw an object resembling a log or an upturned boat, wriggling and churning up the water, moving slowly at first before disappearing at a fast, spa- at a fast speed. The account was not published until 1934 when Mackenzie sent his story in a letter to Rupert Gold shortly after popular interest in the monster increased. Hmm. So then, in 1888, Mason Alexander MacDonald of Abrachan cited a large stubby-legged animal surfacing from the lock and propelling itself within 50 yards of the shore where MacDonald stood. McDonald reported his sighting to Loch Ness, Wa- Loch Ness water bailiff Alex Campbell and described the creature as looking like a salamander. Ooh. So then in 1933, 
the Loch Ness Monster's legend began to grow. At the time, a road adjacent to Loch Ness was finished, offering an unobstructed view of the lake. Oh. So now more people are seeing it. Uh-huh. The best-known article that first attracted a great deal of attention about a creature was published on May 2nd, 1933. Is that the famous picture? We'll get there. Okay. The Inverness Courier about a large beast or whale-like fish. The article by Alex Campbell Water Bailiff for Loch Ness and a part-time journalist discussed the article by Alex Campbell Water Bailiff for Loch Ness and part-time journalist discussed a sighting by Aldi McKay of an enormous creature with the body of a whale rolling in the water in a loch while she and her husband John were driving on the A82. In April 1933, according to a 2013 article, McKay said that she had yelled, Stop the beast! (laughs) when viewing the spectacle. In the late 1980s, a naturalist interviewed Aldi McKay and she admitted to knowing that there had been an oral tradition of a beast in the loch well before her claimed sighting. Mm. Alex Campbell's 1933 article also stated that Loch Ness has for generations been credited with being the home of a fearsome-looking monster. Oh. Loch Ness Monster. Mm-hmm. The Courier in 2017 published excerpts from the Campbell article, which had been titled Strange Spectacle in Loch Ness. The creature distorted itself, rolling and plunging for a minute. Its body resembled that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like, sim- like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realized that here was no ordinary inhabitant of the depths. Wow. Because, apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. Wow. Yeah. So that is what the article had said said. then. Which is pretty interesting. Could you imagine just waking up and that was 1933, right? Um, so the article was in 2017. Like, like the excerpts the, were from... 1933. So could you imagine waking up in 1933 and reading that article and just being like, God damn. Yeah, I feel like we're going... <laughs> So, modern interest in the monster was sparked by a sighting on July 22nd, 1933, when George Spicer and his wife saw a most extraordinary form of animal cross the road in front of their car. They described the creature as having a large body, about four feet high and 25 feet long. Wow. And a long, wavy, narrow neck, slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk and as long as 10 feet. Holy. Yeah. They saw no limbs. It lurched across the roads towards the lock, 20 yards away. I really enjoyed that they saw no limbs, but they're like, couldn't be a snipe. (laughs) Well, this thing is massive. I was actually thinking like a slug. Oh, (laughs) yeah, but the long ass neck that's no thicker than an elephant's trunk? Like, that's not a very... Maybe it wasn't the neck. Maybe it was like just part of its body. Maybe. Could be. I'm, I like to think it's a giant snake that ate something very large. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. <laughs> Leaving a trail of broken undergrowth in its wake. 
Spicer described it as the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that he had ever seen in his life, and as having a long neck which moved up and down in the manner of a scenic railway. It had an animal in its mouth and had a body that was fairly big with a high back, but if there were any feet, they must have been of the web kind. As for the tail, I cannot say, as it moved so rapidly, and when they got to the spot, it had probably disappeared into the lock. Mm-hmm. Like, you got quite a bit of information. But From just, like, a glance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially something that big without any limbs moving that quickly. I'm going to be honest with you. If I seen something like that, I would just get out and stare. Deer yeah. in the headlights, stare at it. Yeah, I would not be. Yeah, just wow yeah so then again in august of 1933 the courier published a report of spicer sighting the sighting triggered a massive amount of public interest and an uptick in alleged sightings leading to the solidification of the actual name loch ness monster Mm -hmm. then in december of 1933 the daily mail commissioned marbaduke weatherall a big game hunter, to locate the sea serpent. Along the lake shore, he found large footprints that he believed to belong to a very powerful, soft-footed animal, about 20 feet long. However, upon closer inspection, zoologists at the Natural History Museum determined that the tracks were identical and made with an umbrella stand or ashtray that had a hippopotamus leg as a base. What the fuck? What a guy! Yeah. In January of 1934, a motorcyclist, Arthur Grant, claimed to have nearly hit the creature while approaching a breach at about 1 a.m. on a moonlit night. According to Grant, it has a small head attached to a long neck. The creature saw him and crossed the road back to the lock. Grant, a veterinarian student, described it as a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur. Ah, yes. He said he dismounted and followed it to the lock, but only saw ripples. Mm. I'm finding it very interesting that this aquatic animal is continually leaving the lock to cross a road. I just find that very interesting. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> the news only seemed to expedite efforts to prove the monster's existence. In 1934, English physician Robert Kenneth Wilson photographed the alleged creature, the iconic image known as the surgeon's photograph. Yes, that's the famous one. Yes. Yeah. Appeared to show the monster's small head and neck. The Daily Mail printed the photograph, sparking an international sensation. Many speculated that the creature was a plesiosaur, a marine reptile that went extinct 65.5 million years ago. For six years, this photo was considered evidence of the monster's existence, although skeptics dismissed it as driftwood. Mm. <laughs> In May 1938, South African tourist G.E. Taylor filmed something in the lock for three minutes on 16 millimeter color film. The film was obtained by popular science writer Maurice Burton, who did not show it to other researchers. A single frame was published in his 1961 book, The Elusive Monster. His analyst concluded it was a floating object, not an animal. Aww. 
In August of 1938, William Fraser, chief constable of Inverness Shire, wrote a letter that the monster existed beyond doubt and expressed concern about a hunting party that had arrived with a custom-made harpoon gun. (gasps) Determined to catch the monster dead or alive. No! He believed his power was to protect the monster from the hunters and was very doubtful. The letter was released by the National Archives of Scotland on the 27th of April, 2010. Okay. In December of 1954, sonar readings were taken by the fishing boat Rival 3. Its crew noted a large object keeping pace with the vessel at a depth of 146 meters. Wow. It was detected for 800 meters before contact was lost and regained. Wow, that is so wild. Previous sonar attempts were inconclusive or negative. Huh. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Aeronautical engineer Din- Tim Dinsdale filmed a hump that left a weight crossing Loch Ness in 1960. Dinsdale, who reportedly had the sighting on his final day of research, described it as a reddish with a blotch on its side. He said that when he mounted his camera, the object began to move. He shot 40 feet of film. Then in 1993, Discovery Communications produced a documentary, Loch Ness Discovered. With a digital enhancement of the Dinsdale film, a person who enhanced the film noticed a shadow in the negative that was not obvious in the developed film. Oh? By enhancing and overlaying frames, he found what appeared to be the rear body of a creature underwater. He said, before I saw the film, I thought the Loch Ness monster was a load of rubbish. Having done the enhancement, I'm not so sure. Wow. Uh. Yeah. The Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau, LNPIB, was a UK-based society formed in 1962 by Norman Collins, RSR Fitter, politician Dave James, Peter Scott, and Constance White, to study Loch Ness to identify the creature known as the Loch Ness Monster or determine the cause of it of reports of it. Okay. So they created a bureau for it. Well, I mean, God, if you've been having reports in these in this lock for over a century, longer than that. Mm-hmm. In 1967, it received a grant of $20,000 from World Book Encyclopedia to fund a two-year program of daylight watches from May to October. Oh my God, that's the dream. Right? <laughs> The principal equipment was a 35mm movie camera on mobile units with 20-inch lenses and one with a 36-inch lens at Achanut near the midpoint of the lock with the mobile units in pull-offs. About 80% of the lock surface was covered by surveillance. Mm -hmm. The society's name was later shortened to the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, and then, unfortunately, disbanded in 1972. Mm-hmm. But in 1972, a group of researchers from the Academy of Applied Science, led by Robert H. Hines, conducted a search for the monster involving sonar examination of the loch's depths for unusual activity. Okay. That's a, yeah, good start. Rhines took precautions to avoid murky water with floating wood and peat. A submersible ca- sub- Submersible camera with a floodlight was deployed to record images below the surface. Mm-hmm. If Ryan's detected anything on the sonar, he turned the light on and took pictures. 
in August of 1972, Rhine's Raytheon DE725C sonar unit, operating at a frequency of 200 kilohertz and anchored at a depth of 11 meters, identified a moving target estimated by echo strength at 6 to 9 meters in length. Wow. Or that's 20 to 30 feet. Wow. Yeah. That's really big. Mm-hmm. For a lock. Like, it's, like, it's not a, like, it's a big lake, but it's not. It's huge. Honestly. Okay. So I 20 feel... to 30 feet would make sense in a lake that size. Yes. Okay. At least I would think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Specialists from Raytheon Department of Ocean Engineering were on hand to examine the data. Piskitsky <laughs> of Raytheon suggested that the data indicated a three meter protuberance projecting from one of the echoes. According to author Roy McCall, the shape was a highly flexible lateral flattened tail. Okay. It was a giant ass tail. Mm-hmm. British naturalist Peter Scott announced in 1975 on the basis of the photographs that the creature's scientific name would be Nesiteris. Oh my goodness, I should have done a uh, <laughs> how to pronounce this. Rhombopteryx. Okay. Greek for Ness inhabitant with a diamond-shaped fin. I love it. Yeah. You go, Nessie. <laughs> You're a real creature now. You've got a scientific name and everything. It gets better. Scott intended that the name would enable the creature to be added to the British Register of Protected Wildlife. Hi! So she's protected. She's safe! (laughs) Another sonar contact was made, this time with two objects, estimated to be about nine meters. The strobe camera photographed two large objects... Surrounded by a flurry of bubbles. Some interpreted the objects as two plesiosaur-like animals, suggesting several large animals living in Loch Ness. This photograph has rarely been published. Oh. I looked for it. Oh, you couldn't find it? No. Oh, that's too bad. The Google let me down. Damn it, Google. Letting us down all over the place this episode. I know. (laughs) Another search was conducted by Rhines in 1975. Some of the photographs, despite their obviously murky quality and lack of concurrent sonar readings, did indeed seem to show unknown animals in various positions and lightings. One photograph appeared to show the head, neck, and other upper torso of a plesiosaur-like animal. Mm-hmm. In May of 1977, Anthony Doc Shields, camping next to... Urquhart Castle took some of the clearest pictures of the monster until this day. Shields, a magician and psychic, claimed to have summoned the animal out of the water. Okay, I love that for you. Just I I was with him until that moment. Okay, but could you imagine being a psychic who was like, you know what, this is not enough powers. People do not believe me. I must also become a magician who summons Nessie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, he later described it as an elephant squid, claiming oh. the long neck shown in the photograph is actually the squid's trunk and that a white spot at the base of the neck is its eye. I don't know if I trust the magician. No. I don't know if I trust him. 
I, yeah. <laughs> I know. In 2001, Ryan's Academy of Applied Science videotaped a V-shaped wake traversing still water on a calm day. Oh. The Academy also videotaped an object on the floor of the walk resembling a carcass and found marine clamshells and a fungus-like organism not normally found in freshwater locks. Oh. A suggested connection to the sea and possible entry for the creature. Okay, that makes sense. So it is freshwater. There are salts getting in there somewhere. Yes. There, there's a channel. That's I what guess. they're thinking. Yeah. Okay, it makes sense. In 2007, 55-year-old laboratory technician Gordon Holmes videotaped what he said was this jet black thing about 14 meters long moving fairly fast in the water. Adrian Shine, a marine biologist at the Loch Ness 2000 Center in Drumdrollet, <laughs> the Scottish towns now. <laughs> Drumnad Roshit. Okay. Drumna Roshit. Described the footage as among the best footage he has ever seen. Oh. Which, you know what? Good for him. But when, like, when they're describing him, I do feel like they didn't need to add his age. No. But here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In 2008, Ryan's theorized that the creature may have become extinct. Citing the lack of significant sonar readings and a decline in eyewitness accounts. He undertook a final expedition using sonar and an underwater camera in an attempt to find a carcass. Rhines believed that the animals may have failed to adapt to temperature changing and resulting from global warming. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Humans killed Nessie? Like, indirectly, but still. It, like, it makes sense, though. It's horrible. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry to break your heart today. Oh, my heart is pretty sad now. <laughs> yeah. So, in August of 2011, Loch Ness boat captain Marcus Atkinson photographed a sonar image of a 1.5 meter wide unidentifiable object that seemed to follow his boat for 2 meters at a depth of 23 meters and ruled out the possibility of a small fish or seal. In April of 2012, a scientist from the National Oceanography Center said that the image is a bloom of algae and zooplankton. Oh, man. On August 27th of 2013, tourist David Elder presented a five-minute video of a mysterious wave in the lock. According to Elder... The wave was produced by a 4.5 meter solid black object just under the surface of the water. Elder, 50, from East Kilbride, South Lancashire, Lancashire, was taking a picture of a swan at the Fort Augustus Pier on the southwestern end of the lock. When he captured the movement, he said the water was very still at the time and there was no ripples coming off the wave and no other activity on the wave. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Then again, in April of 2014, it was reported that a satellite image on Apple Maps showed what appeared to be a large creature, thought by some to be the Loch Ness Monster, just below the surface of Loch Ness. At the lochs far north, the image appeared about 30 meters long. Wow. I tried to look for it, and, like, so I don't have any Apple products, so I couldn't, like, 
Apple Google it. So I Google Googled it and I was sadly disappointed. Damn it. We're yeah. gonna need to like get some access to these. We have to start infiltrating some zoological like groups. <laughs> yeah. We need to go and find someone that'll let us go and see these these satellite pictures. Yeah. Because <laughs> the Google has let us down. Uh-huh. The Loch Ness area attracts numerous monster hunters, obviously. Yep. Over the years, several sonar expeditions were undertaken to locate the creature, but unfortunately, none were successful. In addition, numerous photographs allegedly showing the beast, but most were discredited as fake or as depicting other animals or other objects. So one of the really funny stories I found was some guy took a picture um it was like a duck on a boat on a log or something like that and he was like yeah this is messy and he was doing it in spite of being discredited previously (laughs) it was so funny and i didn't add it because like i just i couldn't figure out where that whole timeline okay but it was really funny <laughs> that he was just discredited as like, seriously, dude, you glued something to a log and called it messy. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So an international team consisting of researchers from the University of Otago, Copenhagen, Hull and the Highlands and Islands did a DNA survey of the lake in June of 2018. Oh. They were looking for unusual species. Yeah. The results were published in 2019. No DNA of large fish such as sharks, sturgeons, and catfish could be found. No otter or seal DNA were obtained either. Mm. Though, there's a lot of eel DNA. Interesting. The leader of the study, Professor Neil Gemmel of the University of Otago, said he could not rule out the possibility of eels of extreme size. Though none were found and nor were ever caught, nor were any ever caught, The other possibility is that the large amount of eel DNA simply comes from many, many small eels. Mm. Which kind of gives me the icky feels. Yeah, I don't enjoy eels. No. Not particularly. So, despite the lack of conclusive evidence, the Loch Ness Monster remains popular and profitable. In the early 21st century, it was thought that it contributed nearly $80 million dollars annually to scotland's economy you know that makes a lot of sense yeah well people are going to scotland sometimes just to see the loch ness exactly like i don't know if that would definitely if i'm going to scotland i'm going there so i would agree yeah so my references were history.com britannica.com and wikipedia awesome that was super interesting i'm so glad you covered her (laughs) i i'm glad you liked it yes it was, there was a lot. I don't doubt it. So many sightings. And it was very, I found it was really difficult to like pick the ones that I thought held the most mm-hmm. weight. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Well, I'm glad you liked it. So that wraps us up for N. You'll have to tune in next week as we cover O. o. Yes, I'm so excited for my O. Me too, actually. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so good. Mm-hmm. And then remember the last Friday of every month, we put out a nocturnal novella. Yes, our fun bonus episode. 
Yes, so make sure to tune in for those. And thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for Creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for Creepy Podcast. Or on Instagram at C for Creepy Podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at cforcreepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at lexxa underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.